Well, good morning. I uh, planned just to wear a Speedo today, but some nut in Oklahoma <laughs> stole my idea. It's crazy. Oh. <laughs> uh, we're in First Peter. I'm glad to be here. I have some extended family with me today, so we brought a, we have a Suburban that seats nine, and ten of us got in it this morning and hauled over here, and we're glad to have some people with skinny bottoms to, to make that happen, but uh, some good friends of ours are in for Austin, and they lived in Nacogdoches for a while and worshiped here sometimes, and so it's good to have them with us. Uh, we're in a, not the easiest text, and there are texts in First Peter that are harder than this one. And uh, especially the, the one that mentions that when Jesus died, he went and preached to uh, those who were in the grave. And, and thankfully, that, that passage is scheduled for a week that Mandy and I are on vacation. And so whoever the pastor, whoever the guest speaker is, has to handle that one. Um, but we do have uh, some tough passages, and, and this is one of them, I think, primarily because of verse 18. I don't know if verse 18 will bother you. But uh, in, my, in my prep to try to elaborate on this passage, more than half my time was spent just on verse 18. And so I'll tell you why it bothered me. And, and in a sense, it is a, a rabbit, perhaps, that we're going to chase. But I think it's worth it. And um, maybe we can get to the bottom of that and then get to the rest of the passage. But we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18 and read through verse 25, and then unpack it. Would you stand as we read, and then I'll pray, and we'll get to work. Verse 18 says, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience towards God, conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do it what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. This purpose being suffering, it was mentioned. You have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he bore himself, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Lord Jesus, help us to just place ourselves in your hands as the shepherd and the guardian of our souls to be attentive to your Holy Spirit and whatever he might want to say to our hearts and to leave here better applying your word in our lives because we met together this morning. I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, verse 18 says, in some texts, 
in English, servants. In some texts in English, slaves. The, the Greek word is, without question, slaves. Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And as I read that, at the same time I was reading a novel that just won the Pulitzer Prize called The Underground Railroad. It's an outstanding novel, and it covers slavery in America. It's fictional, but it's you know, based on reality, and I'm reading that while I'm reading this scripture. And so it just leapt out, on, out at me be submissive to your masters with respect, not only those who are good and gentle. And I thought, can you be a slave owner and be good? And it just overwhelmed me and preoccupied me. And I spent lots of times trying to answer that question. So I'm going to share with you where I feel like Scripture took me. In one sense, absolutely not, but it's a very general sense because we know the Bible says none of us are good, right? There is none good, no, not one. So in the, the broad sweeping sense, no, you can't be good and, and be a cashier at a gas station. You can't be good at all. And so that's not, that can't be the context that this verse is speaking in, however, because the verse contrasts good with unjust. So he's not talking about uh, just that no one's good. He's talking about there are some that are good and gentle and there are some that are unjust in verse 18. And so then I thought, well, you know, the Bible speaks in context. Maybe the Bible is saying of all the slave owners, there's certainly a spectrum and some are better than others and on this side of the spectrum would be the good and the gentle and on this side of the spectrum would be the unjust. And if you investigate it, certainly you, you, you realize that the slavery of biblical times isn't exactly the American slavery that we have in our heritage because there wasn't kidnapping and uh, you know, robbing people from their homes. It was usually the person in slavery gave himself into slavery to pay a debt or to get something. And so certainly there's a difference. And so maybe it's it's really not that bad, but then it doesn't, you don't get off the hook there either because the whole passage is about suffering. So there's an understanding that in this day, slaves suffered and they suffered harshly and they suffered unjustly. And then, and I'll tell you where I felt like God solved it for me, or at least for the time being, I remembered a text in the Old Testament and it's up on the screen. 1 Kings Chapter 3, verse 3, talking about Solomon, says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, except, in some translations, except, and this one only, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And I thought, well, that doesn't seem right. And it parallels for me in this way. Solomon loved the Lord and walked with the Lord, except that he worshipped at the high places. These high places were temples to pagan gods. So what the Old Testament's saying here is he loved the Lord, he walked with the Lord, he was pleasing to the Lord, he was good, except that he also worshipped at pagan temples. And it just, that doesn't seem, it doesn't seem right, right? Does, 
I've heard pastors say, and maybe you've heard this statement, and I've come to realize that it's just not true. And I used to embrace it, and it's that, that Jesus is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. It's a catchy phrase, isn't it? But the Bible doesn't cooperate with that. Jesus is hardly ever Lord of all of our lives. Can we be honest? <laughs> he's hardly ever Lord of all of our lives. And I would hope that he could say about me, Michael is good, or Michael is gentle, or Michael walks with me, and then only have one thing to say on the accept column, right? I mean, so, so I'm looking at Solomon, and, and he's put forth as this example, and I look back at this verse about slave owners, and I think how amazing the grace of God is. Both parties are similar in this way. They are participating in an institution of wickedness. Pagan temple worship, slavery, institutions of wickedness. And in the institution, as they sin, by the grace of God, they can be called good. They can be called walking with the Lord. Not because they're not sinning, but because God is so gracious. And that because our sin is so plentiful, that he would brag on us if we just have one big struggle. And you think about the reality of today. And how this could give us comfort to say, you know what? He loves the Lord and he walks with the Lord and he wants to do right except that he's an alcoholic. Or he walks with the Lord or she walks with the Lord except and just fill in the blank of the sin we struggle with or the institutional sin in our culture that's wrapped us up and it came as good news. So I think that's what First Peter means here. That God obviously is against slavery. Paul mentions later in the New Testament that if you can escape slavery, you should. And as I started with this verse, though, I said, why doesn't the verse say, slave owners, let all your slaves free? Well, because he's not take, talking to slave owners, he's talking to slaves. And the advice he has for them and the, the guidance and the command that he has had for them and he has for all of us wasn't run away, get away, but instead, suffer rightly. So, in that context, we can look at the rest of the passage. But I couldn't get past that. It preoccupied me. And I, maybe it'll provoke some more research on your part. So, four questions this morning. We just answered the first one. Can there even be a good slave owner? The second one is, how should we suffer? And verse 18 through 20 tell us how we should suffer. We should suffer respectfully. We should suffer Godwardly, with God in mind, the passage is going to mention, and we should suffer graciously. So let me read the passage, give you an illustration, and then elaborate. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. There's respectfully, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of one's conscience towards God, or other passages say, if with godly thinking or with a mindset towards God, there's our second way, a person bears up under sorrows and suffering unjustly, what credit is there? But if you, if you sin and are, are harshly treated and you endure it with patience, but if when you do what's right, and you suffer for it patiently, you endure it, that finds favor with God. So last of all, graciously or patiently, you, you endure it. 
Wellington Boone, who is a pastor in Georgia, preached a sermon on this passage in Philadelphia at a National Youth Ministers Convention. I was 18 years old, and it changed my life. Uh, I bought the cassette tape. They didn't have CDs then. I bought the cassette tape and listened to the cassette tape over and over again until it had skips and scratches and things like that. And so some of what I'm about to say, he said on that day. He read this passage and he said, all of us pray, if we're, if we're believers and we want to follow the Lord, we pray, Lord, use me. God, use me. We, we, we have that common prayer. I've prayed that prayer. You've probably prayed that prayer. Lord, use me. You know, sometimes when I pray that prayer, I have an image of there being a big rally like at AT&T Stadium in Dallas and at the last minute the speaker can't make it and I'm in Dallas anyway and somehow, you know, I get to speak to 80,000 people at once and I'm like, yeah, I prayed, Lord, use me and he used me, you know. And I think that's what we, you know, we pray, Lord, use me and the, the image that we have in our head is of him using us in a way that would get us a lot of attention. Here's what Wellington Boone said that helped change that. He said, when you pray, Lord, use me, oftentimes he sends people into your life who will do just that. <laughs> and so we pray, Lord, use me, and then we have somebody needy come into our life who needs a ride and who needs extra cash. And we, we go back to the Lord. There's some back there in that pocket because they're laughing about it. And we, and we go back to the Lord and we say, God, these people are using me. He's like, that's what you prayed, you know. Read up on it. You don't know how to pray as you ought, but as you pray, I fix it up. And you know what I heard was, be useful. And I made you useful. He gave the example of what we do with Jesus is use him. We use him to get to, to God. You've seen the drawing probably. It was the drawing made the night Mandy trusted Jesus as her Savior in youth group. Uh, here, here's God, and here is you, and there's a great valley between you and you cannot get to God and then you draw the cross and the cross falls into the valley and the cross becomes a bridge that we can walk on to get to God and Jesus dying on the cross made that possible and we use his death on the cross to get to God and so he's like a sort of bridge and every bridge gets walked on and so I think this passage is calling us to a lifestyle where people around us find us useful to get to places they couldn't otherwise get if we weren't in their lives. And that's the most positive way to say it. The negative way to say it is there are people in our lives who will use us and walk all over us. But the reality of it is they're walking on us to get to a place they couldn't otherwise get if we weren't strong enough to let them walk on us. And you have to prayerfully consider the fine line between being a doormat who's just surrendered and has no spine and being strong enough to let people use you. And certainly there's a difference. 
when Jesus was on that cross and he, he started his last prayer, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest of that prayer, which comes from Psalm 24, is, nevertheless, I am a worm and not a man. That's the whole poetic stanza. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nevertheless, I am a worm and not a man. And Wellington Boone said on that day to a bunch of youth workers, maybe you're not being the best fishers of men you can be because you're not being a worm. Fish like worms. And he talks about the nature of a snake and the nature of a worm. And we have to test ourselves daily on this. The nature of a snake is that if, if you step on it, it will immediately bite you back. And the nature of a worm is if you step on it, it is easily crushed. And Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nevertheless, I am a worm. I'm easily crushed. I'm not a snake. That's someone else's nature. That's the enemy's nature. And so when I'm used, I do not have to fight back. But instead, as we find in this passage, we take it respectfully, godwardly, graciously, patiently. We bow low to the will of God. And I'm trying to do that in my family, my extended family. We're suffering now. Uh, we're, we're getting out of it. And I'll try to tell you staying together, but I felt I would use it as an illustration. Um, at Christmas time, when I sat with my extended family, every generation, and there were four there, every generation in my family had lost a sibling. And my grandmother in the New England school explosion lost a sister. Uh, my mother uh, lost her brother when he was about 19 to a car accident. Mandy's brother died at 39 on December 10th of 2015. And then my niece, she's really a cousin, but I think of her, my niece, she was 18, died this year or last year on December 1st, had a seizure and just died. And so at Christmas, there we are, and I'm looking, I'm like, I cannot believe this, you know, that every single generation, and of course, we try to be lighthearted about it. I, I, we had a family friend there, and I pointed it out to her, and she said, well, your family always has been overachievers. So, but this is not where you want to overachieve. And, and so, so um, my aunt, whose daughter was the one who died December 1st, said just recently, um, she wishes her will in this issue, she wishes her will trumped God's, but it doesn't, and she bows to his will. And I think that that is suffering patiently and respectfully and graciously and Godwardly because that's the way Christ suffered. In the garden with us, I mean for us, praying and pleading with the Father and saying, if there's any other way for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And so that's how we suffer. And God has to bring us to that point because oftentimes we suffer as Job did, certainly, at first. You know, Job is the oldest, oldest document we have in the Bible. It was written before Genesis. So it doesn't take place before Genesis, but it was written first. It was the very first 
book written. So I think it's interesting that the very first book God gave to us makes clear that he owns us and he owes us nothing. I mean, that's like, here's your first message. I am God and you are not. And as Job suffered and cried out, show me my sin, show me my sin, what am I doing to deserve this? Instead of God showing him his sin, God showed him his self, and then Job didn't have anything to say. So when we see who God is, and because we see who God is, we see what suffering we deserve, then we can suffer respectfully, Godwardly, graciously, and patiently because there's this amazing thing we can all celebrate. If you are in Christ, if you know Christ, if you love Christ, if you are His, you will never suffer as you ought. Never. To put it another way that's incredible, this earth, this life, this is your hell. It's as close as you'll ever get. This is your place of torment and suffering. It's the most you'll ever get. And it just doesn't compare to what we deserve. So when terrible things happen, when we, when we suffer, and I do believe that, that Christians suffer sometimes, even in America, we, we, we suffer even because we know who God is and we love more and we love bigger. And so when we get betrayed, it hurts more because we weren't so flippant in that relationship. And so we even have emotional suffering that other people don't have. And we certainly, as the Bible says, we don't grieve as people without hope. We have hope, but it doesn't mean we don't grieve. And in all that suffering, we have the promise that it's as close to hell as we'll ever get. And the flip side of that that's tragic is that people without Christ, this is their heaven. This is as close to heaven as ever. And it's not nearly good enough to be compared to heaven, but it's not nearly bad enough to be compared to hell. And, and if it's going to be one or the other, I want it to be the hell I experience, not the heaven I experience, right? So we're going to suffer. We'll never suffer as we deserve. We suffer with, with strength and patience. And, and I love the, the phrase, um, with your mind set towards God. So that as we suffer, we are mindful. Verse 19. That we can suffer for the sake of a conscience toward God. Or to, to, with an open mind towards God. Might be a better phrase. It's in some translations. So as we suffer, we're supposed to be mindful of God. Mindful of how great He is. Mindful that we won't, we're not getting the suffering we deserve. And mindful that Christ suffered for us. And that he, the only religion in the history of the world that has the God they worship suffering with them and for them is ours. No one else can even understand this concept. And we can celebrate it that Christ suffered for us. And we're promised that as we suffer, that the Holy Spirit suffers with us so that we don't suffer alone. So that's how we should suffer. And I'm kind of getting into why, but now we'll really get into the why we should suffer. The third question, verses 21 through 25. And the first reason is very clear. For, th- for you have been called for this purpose. 
you have been called for the purpose of suffering. And it wasn't false advertising. Now, sometimes it is, and that's sad. But it's not false advertising from Scripture. You hear false advertising sometimes from uh, evangelists or, or maybe even new believers who talk about how you know, when you follow Christ and you love Christ and, and you, you're going to become a Christian and then it's just going to be you know, unicorns and rainbows because everything's going to work out. You're sure to have more money. You're sure to have less stress and all of that. And you have the, the Lord, Jesus himself, saying instead, take up your cross and follow me. You know, not exactly the same command. And in that day, we have to remember, you know, because crosses have changed, you know, now we have them on necklaces and they're pieces of jewelry and it's the most recognizable uh, symbol in the world, second to the golden arches of McDonald's. I mean, is, is the golden ar arches of McDonald's, but first is the cross. And, um, and so we, you know, we take it lightly and I'm saying it's fine if it's around your neck, but I'm just showing you how far it's traveled from the days that Jesus was talking about it because now it's a, it's a symbol. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't threaten us. So if Jesus were alive today, he might would say something like, take up your, your electric chair and follow me. Take up your noose and follow me. See that lethal injection syringe? Grab it up and follow me. This is what the original hearers were hearing, okay? Their association with the cross was that's where people die. So there was no false advertising, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's saying, grab your instrument of death and follow me. And I'm going to kill you in the best way ever. I'm going to kill all that needs to be killed and work on resurrecting all that needs to be resurrected. So it's our calling. It's in the call he makes to us. It's in our calling because of the next phrase, which is awesome. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. And the example is twofold. The example is he suffered and you're called to suffering, so as you follow in his steps, you will suffer. But it's also he suffered gently and respectfully and graciously, and so as you suffer, you suffer that way. For he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. While he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We know in Isaiah, the passage says, led like sheep before the shearer or the slaughterer, no words out of his mouth, no objections, he had said already before during his life, no one takes my life from me. I give my life willingly. And so I don't think we are supposed to run to suffering, but I don't think we're supposed to avoid it at all cost either. As it comes, instead of saying, how can I not have this suffering in my life, a better first question would be, how can I, during this suffering, suffer as Christ would want me to suffer. And to, to recognize that majestically, which I think is the church word, when you hear majestically, and you know, it's just the church word for magically. 
The secular word is magically. The church word is majestically. And so there's a sense of like supernatural magic in this. And so majestically, when we, nothing connects us to Jesus like suffering will. Nothing. We don't go for it first, but nothing connects us to him better. Uh, there was a panel of mission directors at a conference and John Piper was sitting on the panel and they, they asked uh, what was the best strategy of growing churches quickly on the mission field and he said uh, martyrdom. Nothing historically has worked like martyrdom. So just because it's the best strategy doesn't mean we sign up for it, you know? I hear it works best, so let's go for that. No. But when persecution is, isn't it interesting, and you know this, and we see this, isn't it? It, it can't be accidental that there's this direct relationship where persecution is highest, spiritual fervor is high as well. And it's amazing that it doesn't do the opposite, isn't it? That our faith and our, and our love for Jesus cannot be squashed by persecution. It just gets multiplied. And so we are connected best with Christ. It is almost as if when we suffer, and sufferings, you know, we're getting pulled in two different directions, and we have God who wants something for us, and we have others who want other things, or Satan who wants other things, and we're just, our, our souls, this battlefield as we live, and, and as we're suffering, we're being stretched, and we're being expanded, and then the promise of God is, I will fill the void, and suffering makes the void bigger, and then he comes in, and you get filled more because you suffered. God always fills the void that suffering creates. Jesus, verse 24, bore our sins with his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. It is, it is our immediate impulse when crushed to fight back. It is our immediate impulse when stepped on to throw off. It is our immediate impulse when used to, to gather up as much entitlement we can and fight back with entitlement. It is our immediate impulse not to suffer, not to be taken advantage of, not to be used. And it is Christ's calling to allow all of that to happen for his glory. And we do it best when we know this is not our home. Where Hebrews says, we, we live headed to another city. And so we're under the governance of the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Verse 25 says, we were straying like sheep, but now we have returned to the shepherd and the guardian. I'm going to try to relate this to, to communion since we're going to celebrate communion. Um, 
the last point was, are, are, we, are we sheep, slaves, or servants? And the, the long answer was yes, all three, but I'll, I'll skip that point. Um, I'm honored and, uh, that we get to take communion this morning, and we know when, when Jesus set this up, he, he told us to, to look forward to the day of his return. We look back on the event of his cross, and of course, presently, we try to connect with him. But this is an expression of suffering. His body was broken. His blood was spilt. And when we take communion, when, we, when he set up a way for us to connect with him and commune with him, it was an expression of suffering. There's no accident there. And when we go out and we can be expressions of suffering gladly and generously and patiently, then we're allowing others to have a sort of communion with Christ as well. And I think, and it's okay that it's going to be safe today. I'm not knocking it. It should be safe usually. But I think so many times in Christianity we tame, in, not in Christianity but in church culture, which is different. We tame everything, right? This is what we do as humans. We tame everything. And so... Um, you know, like the Chronicles of Narnia, speaking of Aslan, who represents Christ, and they say, is he a safe lion? And they say, of course he's not a safe lion, but he's good. You know, we have this Christ who is like that. Of course he's not safe. If you follow him, it will hurt, and you will suffer, but he's good. It'll always be good. It'll always be okay. He'll always fill the void afterwards. So communion is usually so organized and so safe, and that's okay. You know, we're going to pass it. That's going to distribute. But I remember once at First Baptist Church in Carthage, I was, when they got about three quarters back, and I still remember the deacon's name was Pete, poor Pete, and you just heard like cymbals, clank, 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 and he had dropped like two of the, the juice slash wine uh, plates. And, and everybody, you know, the kids are trying not to snicker and the parents are trying to look down and you look up and our pastor was bald-headed and his whole head was red. He was so angry and embarrassed. And I thought, oh man, yeah, communion gone wrong. This is terrible. This is awful. This is, this is not even going to count probably. I mean, this is awful. <laughs> so what do we do? <laughs> and, and as I'm thinking that, the aroma from the juice started like filling the whole sanctuary, you could smell it. It was in the air. And even then I thought, I bet this is much more like the event of the cross than our normal everyday. And, but here's the example, the reason I'm sharing that is until something was broken, they, it didn't permeate anything. And until we're broken, we don't, we don't change anybody. We don't permeate anything. And that we can trust ourselves to God. We can put ourselves in his hands. And sometimes it feels like he breaks us. Like he took the bread and he blessed the bread and he broke the bread. And then he gave the bread for people to eat. That's what he's going to do with our lives. And we get in his hands so many times and he starts blessing us. And we're like, yes, I knew this Christianity thing was going to be awesome. I had a new convert tell me one time that since she got saved, she hadn't hit a red light. I was like, I don't think God has anything to do with that. Like, what? I got news for you, sister. You're going to hit a red light sometimes, and it doesn't mean God hates you. Just, you know, it's a coincidence. So he takes us and he blesses us, and we're like, yes. And then he starts to break us. And we're like, no, no. 
I didn't sign up for this. And we jump out of his hands and we live in rebellion, trying to have an easy life. And we repent and we come back to his hands and he blesses us. And we're like, why did I ever leave? And he starts to, oh yeah, this is why I left. And we're out. And some of us live life like that. Here's the full cycle that he wants for us. We get in his hands and he blesses us and he breaks us and he gives us to others for them to be satisfied with our lives, for us to be used, for us to be bridges, for us to be worms. Jesus, I ask for that. It is hard not to flee suffering. But you did not, and we can suffer as you suffered for the sake of others and to connect ourselves with you. And I pray even as we take this, um, this wonderful observance of your body on the cross and as we take the bread and we take the juice, that we would be mindful not of just your suffering but of our own that is in the future and that we could gird ourselves up to prepare for that now and be able to handle that biblically and obediently. And I pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.